Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Rahul Tandon. Thank you very much for joining us. Plenty coming up on the programme. We're going to talk about AI, the US and China, and the economic challenges facing people in Cuba. But we're going to start the programme once again by talking about farmers in Europe and their concerns. Those are the sounds of Polish farmers protesting against cheap food imports from Ukraine. For the first time this week, they brought their protest to the Polish capital, Warsaw. Many of them are also angry with the EU. The demands are unchanged. It's to withdraw from the Green Deal completely. It's to protect our borders, primarily with Ukraine, for goods flowing from there that threaten our agriculture. If you've been listening to the World Service this week, you will have heard our correspondent in Poland, Adam Easton, who has been covering the concerns of those farmers. Adam, thanks for joining us once again. When you speak to those farmers, give us a sense about how angry they are about those imports from Ukraine and tell us what's happening on the border. Um, They're very angry and consistently angry. Farmers in Poland have been protesting now for about a year And in the last month, that has escalated. It's daily protests now. Um, Some of them have been national, where they've blockaded hundreds of uh, roads. And as you saw earlier this week, the about up to 10,000 farmers from across the country came to Warsaw to take part in this march to uh, present their demands. And uh, it's not going away. There have been talks. Uh, but there is another protest in Warsaw scheduled for next week because those talks have not uh, reached uh, an agreement. And on the border, as you mentioned, it's not just the border with Ukraine, but they're blockading the border with Slovakia, Germany and Lithuania because they're trying to prevent Ukrainian grain coming back into Poland, which has already exited uh, through those borders. And there's been incidents, criminal incidents, where uh, small amounts of grain have been spilled from railway wagons or from uh, 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 trucks as well. And in one incident, which was actually in central Poland, 160 kilograms of uh, of corn was uh, released and spilt from a train, which was police are still investigating that. So we don't know for sure who the perpetrator traitors were. But uh, this issue has been going on, as I say, for a year and there's no sign at the moment, at least, it's going to go away. Stay with us, Adam, because some of the concerns that you've been talking about there, well, I've been speaking to the Polish Agricultural Minister, Szesław Szyski, and asking him about some of the concerns of those Polish farmers. This is not a position. This was an opinion voiced by the Prime Minister regarding the expectation and protest among Polish farmers. You need to know we are aware of how serious the situation is for Ukrainians and for Ukraine. And we do cooperate and pursue cooperation in many aspects 
whether humanitarian or military. The Prime Minister voiced the opinion regarding a very, very narrow area of cooperation, which is the train in agri-food products. You say that's a narrow area, but it is an area that's causing a lot of anger amongst Polish farmers. Do you understand that anger? Import. The imports go both ways, from Ukraine, from Poland to Ukraine, and from Ukraine to the EU single market. And uh, we suffer a major impact simply because we have a very long border with Ukraine. This is a major area, we know that, but we are aware of how serious the situation in Ukraine is. And the opening at the EU level caused an excessive burden to a one single social group, Polish farmers, who believe that they lose their competitivity faced with cheaper Ukrainian products. You've got to find a solution to this problem. What is it? Is it putting more restrictions on food products coming in from Ukraine? Indeed, measures have already been taken to address the situation at the border. We improved controls and we decided to maintain the embargo on wheat, maize, rapes, seeds, sunflower and uh, talks are on the way with the Minister of Farming of Ukraine and we have uh, hold bilateral talks with the Ukrainian government. Let's talk about Ukraine. They're worried about goods not being able to cross the border. They're worried about attacks on Ukrainian grain supplies in Poland. Are you going to punish the people who were responsible for that? And will you provide compensation to Ukraine for the grain that's been destroyed? There have been no attacks on those who transport Ukrainian grain. Polish uh, farmers did not uh, attack them uh, when in transit. We had some uh, situation when farmers, upon checking and reviewing the transportation documents, revealed some inaccuracies as to the country of destination. When the documents say that the grain is destined to reach Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia or Germany. And then once in those countries the seals are lifted, it goes back to Poland. So the grain, which should uh, finally be in transit to other countries, comes back to uh, Poland and Polish farmers do feel concerns. It's true we had cases of agri-products and grain being pulled out of wagons or heavy vehicles, but believe me, these were just isolated cases and they should be condemned. We tell our farmers not to do it. We advise them not to do it. And I said to our Ukrainian friends that we are sorry for that, but believe me, this form of protestation, grains and agri-foods being pulled or dropped somewhere, is basically a common practice among the EU farmers. And here the very high emotions of farmers are at stake as well. Let's be very clear here. You've condemned what happened to those 160 tonnes of Ukrainian grain that were destroyed at a Polish railway station. Will you pay compensation for that? Yes, I 
Yes, and I said to Ukrainian partners that we are sorry that these behaviors are objectionable. Polish farmers say that actually they discovered objectionable, unacceptable behaviors from those who are in charge of transporting Ukrainian uh, grain in transit. So in a way, their negative response is in reaction. Those farmers who were in Warsaw protesting in Poland and many farmers across Europe want to see all the agricultural provisions suspended within the EU Green Deal. Has that deal, as many farmers say, gone too far? The EU means us. We all are in the EU and we all have an influence. So the EU is not a foreign body to us. Farmers know how to produce food, they know how to take care of the environment and animal well-being, but they should not be overburdened by administrative or bureaucratic requirements which would constrain them in their smooth agri-production. Well, the farmers believe that some of the requirements, a lot of requirements imposed by the European Commission are not reasonable and for me the Commission has gone too far. This is the reason behind the protest. The Green Deal itself and its ideas, it's quite just and a lot of the elements have been implemented. However, it should be better aligned with the reality. And these temporary issues will not challenge our good relations, our friendly relations and with the Ukrainian friends and our presence in the EU. Adam, interesting to hear the thoughts of the Ukrainian, uh, to hear the thoughts of the Polish agricultural minister there on Ukraine and the EU. And you get a sense that he's trying to walk a fine line in listening to the concerns of the farmers, but balancing the needs of Ukraine and the EU within that. That's exactly right, Rahul. It's basically Poland trying to continue support militarily and humanitarian aid to Ukraine and going out on the world stage to encourage others to do that. But at the same time, when that support giving Ukraine tariff-free access to the EU markets hurts individual uh, segments of Polish society, Polish farmers, as it is in this case, then they feel that that support ends there, that they have to support their own farmers. And the reason they're doing that is because the majority of Poles in uh, this country, the majority of society, supports the farmers' demands. So I think the government, as I say, is trying to support uh, Ukraine in, in its uh, a fight against Russian aggression, but also trying to defend the interests of its farmers. And that's a difficult thing to achieve. Adam, we look forward to your continuing reports on that situation in Poland. Let's move on now and talk once again about AI. But now a battle between two of the key figures within it. Elon Musk is suing OpenAI and its chief executive, Sam Altman, because he claims that the company has abandoned its mission to develop artificial intelligence for the benefit of humanity and not profit. Musk co-founded OpenAI in 2015, but stepped down from its board in the same year. Adam Levitt is the founding partner at the American law firm, Ticello Levitt, and specialises in complex litigation cases. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on World Business Report. I have a sense this is going to be quite a complicated case because it really gets to the heart of a debate that a lot of people are having about the impact of AI at the moment. Is it benefiting companies or humanity? 
Well, I think you're right. And I think that one of the reasons it's going to be an interesting case is that Elon Musk has also launched a competing company. So I think one of the things is you really need to see what this is really all about. Is it really all about wanting to make humanity better? Uh, when when the owner of X is saying that, I'm not entirely sure that's that's right, or whether it's simply just a way of using the American legal system to gain to gain a competitive advantage in a highly competitive, ever-developing space. Yeah, that is something the courts will have to look at very closely. Just, and we're being quite presumptuous here, but in a case like this, if Elon Musk was to win the case, what would actually happen then to the huge profits that OpenAI has made, to the incredible research that it's made? Would that have to be made public? That's an excellent question, because winning this case can take any one of the series the avenues. For example, if this is really strictly a breach of contract case and he wants to get his his money back as a result of a breach, that may be one way of resolving the case. I'm pretty certain that's not what he, he he's interested in. I think he's interested in essentially in an unringing of this bell and forcing open AI to change what it wanted to do as part of its changing corporate view and approach and strategy. And I'm not really sure. And obviously, a lot of information is going to have to ultimately come out before any court or a jury, for that matter, is going to make a conclusion as to what happens there. But at the same time, though, I think the idea that you can force a company to change a corporate strategy that probably falls within what's known as the business judgment rule I am not I am not entirely sure that that's going to be a successful strategy. But once again, I think we really need to look back on what the goal uh, here is with this lawsuit. And we don't know yet. But when someone who is on any given day, the wealthiest guy in the world is trying to plead for the salvation of humanity, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about in front of the judge down the road. Yeah, um, well, yeah, uh, some people would say that, but, you know, uh, he has his right <laughs> oh, to care. To, yeah, he has his right to care about that. I suppose the central point here is it has to come to the corporate structure, really, doesn't it, of what the company was set up for, because a legal dispute over whether AI is for the benefit of humanity or not, I mean, legally, that's going to be very difficult to judge on, isn't it? I think you're right. And I think also the fact is a company is able to change what it it intends Mm. to to do. I mean, when you're running a company, which is in this instance now a for-profit company, I think that you have a right and an ability to decide how things are going to change and evolve down the road. I think that looking at almost any company where you start and where you finish are two incredibly different things sometimes. They certainly are. Listen, Adam, thank you very much for joining us on the program. I'm sure that we will be speaking to you as this case begins and let's see when it begins and how long it lasts and what stage it thank gets Thank you very to. much. Let's bring in Colin McHugh here, Chief Investment Officer at Wealth of Fight. Whatever happens in this case, and it was interesting to hear Adam's point there talking about two companies, the money involved here, AI is still going to be something that is going to drive huge value on the stock exchange. We've seen that with the US all year, haven't we? Absolutely. I mean, um, it's just been on on fire, really. Um, I mean, you're seeing that particularly through the poster child of AI, which is NVIDIA, of course. 
Uh, I mean, over the last 12 months, the stock is up over 250%. And even year to date, Rahul, and you know, we're only March 1st, and it's well over 60% year to date. So strength from strength. I mean, th- this is a, certainly a super interesting case. Um, I have to agree with, with Adam's skepticism <laughs> there. Um, you know, it, it was only last year that, that uh, Elon Musk was calling for a, a pause on the development of, of, of these uh, powerful AI systems. But lo and behold, he sets up his own chat GBT competitor, Grok. So it, it's all very interesting. And and if anything to note, you know, it's the one thing that keeps Elon Musk out of the news, isn't it? Uh, talk of AI. So now he's back with this uh, with this uh, uh, case. Yes, certainly is. He's not out of the news for very, very long. We have to be quite honest about it. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You are with World Business Report here from the BBC World Service. Let's talk about, once again, we often do, the world's two biggest economies. That, of course, is the China and the US. There has been a steep drop in trade between them. But according to Washington's top trade official, that is actually quite a good thing. That's Catherine Tai, and she's been speaking to the BBC at the World Trade Organization meeting in Abu Dhabi. We knew, actually, several years ago that we needed to diversify US-China trade that the dependencies going both ways were creating real vulnerabilities and increasing tensions. So a drop in trade between the United States and China isn't necessarily negative. It could be. It could be a positive indication of diversification on both sides. Okay, so how does the other side view this? We wanted to get a sense of the Chinese response to those sorts of comments. So I've been speaking to Han Lin. He's head of the Asia Group based in Shanghai in China. They are not happy with it at all. They do not think it is good for China. Let's put some figures on that. Last year, the amount of goods the U.S. bought from China fell just over 20% to $427 billion worth. Is there a worry in China that that figure is going to drop even more? There is. And so as China's economy slows down, one of the facts affecting China businesses is that the profit margins are so low, they almost have no choice but to look abroad. And so as they look, whether it is to Mexico, to Southeast Asia, their assumption is margins outside of China are going to be better. And so that's driving some of that outbound exodus of businesses. Now, for some of the businesses that used to export to the U.S., are they in fact going through third-party countries to continue their trade? Probably. But part of it is that business in China in itself has been so difficult that they may not have any other choice but to do so. That is an interesting point that you raised there, particularly the issue of Mexico, because when we look at those overall figures for US-China trade, are they actually a lot higher than the ones I talked about? Because a lot of trade is now going through Mexico. China setting up factories in Mexico to get around attempts by the US to over-rely on China. So Mexico is an interesting story because China is not actually the first to try this. This has already been available and for use by Japan, by Korea, by many other nations. But particularly in this U.S. political election cycle, 
where there is so much more sensitivity about China in general, the very fact that China is using Mexico, a very normal approach in terms of trade, is getting much more attention. And so I, I do agree with you. It, you know, as we look at the recent executive order on the concern of American data being used in, in China uh, cars, uh, we're seeing that play out in terms of you know security sensitivity. We have at the moment both countries, the U.S. a lot more trying to move their supply chains from each other. How would you classify what we're seeing at the moment? Is it a trade war? Are we getting closer to a trade war? Where are we exactly? That's a very good question. If there is in fact a change of administration, okay, over the coming year or so, and that various rumors or or words of raising tariffs on China products into the U.S. going up to 60%, if those play out, yes, we're looking at a very, very real possibility of a trade war. Hanlin there, Colin Q still with us. And those are easily the two biggest economies in the world. So any tensions there, any possibility of a movement towards a trade war is not going to be good for a global economy that's already sort of spluttering in some places. Yeah, absolutely, Rahul. And 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 let's let's just not forget that you know, um, the it, from China's perspective, uh, the U.S. is still its largest trading partner, mm. um, and we all know that the U.S. is the largest consumer in the world, and it just also happens that China is the largest producer in the world. Um, so China not being able to get its goods to the U.S. to sell in a, in an effective manner will certainly have an impact. Um, the, the economy, the domestic economy, there is is slowing down. It's vital that it be able to continue those those exports, and that is what you're seeing. Albeit you're seeing it in a roundabout way, that uh, coincidentally you've seen a massive uptick in um, exports into the U.S. from Mexico. And it just so happens, of course, as we know, that Mexico overtook China as the biggest exporter of goods to the U.S. last year. So it, it seems that they're using that Mexico is a, a, a third root country in, into the U.S. to, to circumvent um, those U.S. tariffs. Yeah. And very briefly, if you don't mind, some figures out on Eurozone inflation this week. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we had uh, inflation headline came in a little bit lower than expected, which which is great. And, and that's despite all the noise about the Red Sea uh, disruptions. Um, the main worry really for the ES, ECB is, is it still remains on the services inflation and, and wages there. So all eyes fed the ECB needs on Thursday. Very, very unlikely that we're going to see any policy change. Possibly we're going to be shifting to June to see the first rate cut. We'll see. We will see indeed. Colleen, thank you very much for all those contributions. Cubans have seen fuel prices increase by five times on Friday. Going to add to their inflation problems on that subject, adding to the severe economic crisis. It's suffering the worst in more than 30 years. This is how one Cuban who's spoken to us described the situation. The situation here is very difficult when it comes to staples. There aren't many and the prices are too high. They're not coherent with Cuban salaries. Then there's the fuel problem. We have power outages because power plants have no fuel. On top of this, this lack of fuel means it's hard to find transport. Milk doesn't exist for Cubans, not even for children. Only those from zero to three years old can drink milk because there are shortages. Sugar has disappeared. Coffee has disappeared. Basically, everything has disappeared. We're having to live like this. This country is living a huge crisis. 
Let's pick up on some of those points there. Cuba, of course, communist model, a so-called command economy controlled by the state. The last time the government planned to introduce the fuel pressure, it had to postpone them. So I've been speaking to the Cuban journalist, Ed Augustine, about the impact that those rises might have. They have now come into force as of midnight last night. Fuel prices in Cuba have quintupled, which sounds absolutely enormous and, of course, is absolutely enormous to Cubans whose earnings have been eviscerated over the last five years by runaway inflation. Although it's worth noting that before midnight tonight, Cuba actually had arguably the lowest fuel prices in the world. The subsidies were so great. And even now, today, fuel prices have been raised five times. The government continues to subsidise fuel and the prices have only come into line with about the regional average in the Americas. So this measure is really about, in the first place, trying to correct the yawning fiscal deficit the government has and also addressing the fact that there's a massive cash crunch. There has been for a long time and the government knows it can't keep on subsidising consumption as it is because there's not very much money left. When you walk around the streets of Cuba... Describe the economic situation that you see that people are facing. This is a society of scarcity. The kind of soundscape of Havana, and I might say that Havana is the richest part of Cuba, is a conversation of where to buy hot dogs, where to buy chicken, did the rice come in, there's no soap, how do we buy shampoo? Every consumer good you can imagine, even sugar, this is a country that used to produce more sugar than any other country in the world and now has to import it, is scarce. That's been the case ever since I've lived in Cuba and reported from here for over 10 years, but it's really become very, very acute how to resolve daily problems, how to put food on the table, where to get the milk from. This is the conversation that peppers everyday life. And these are people's fundamental concerns now more than ever. And we saw this week, didn't we, Cuba approaching the World Food Programme when it came to milk. Those conversations people are having, how does Cuba solve its economic problem? And one of the big problems is its relationship, its economic relationship with the US or the lack of an economic relationship with it. Yeah, Cuba has been sanctioned for over 60 years. That's longer than any other country in modern history. It's possibly longer than any other country since Roman times. And the US seems to show no sign of letting up on that. The Trump administration ramped up the sanctions and the Biden administration have kept them in place. The other elephant in the room um, is, of course, the Cuban economy. It's a planned economy. Most Cubans feel that it's failed. The government has tried to reform it over the last 10 years, but not gotten very far. They seem ideologically wedded to a model and are giving limited space to market reforms, but aren't going the whole hog. And so Cubans are between a, a rock and a hard place. That economic situation, which you have described so eloquently, is that set to get worse? I think in the short term, it probably is likely to get worse. From what I'm hearing from Cuban policymakers, it might take a couple of years for inflation to be stabilised. And what's driving inflation is the lack of hard currency. So I think Cubans are in for at least a few more years of penury, of hardship, of subsistence now for millions of people. Hunger is increasing. Malnutrition is increasing. Increasingly in Cuba, I'm seeing people living on the street and begging, which, you know, might might be difficult to imagine for people who haven't visited the island. But although there's an awful lot of poverty here, you didn't used to see very many people in the street. That's increasing. There are some signs of uh, some green shoot if you look very hard. So there's a growing private sector, which is now importing more food but for those who can afford it. And tourism is slowly rebounding, and that's been one of the the lifelines of the Cuban economy for for decades. But it's taking a long time to rebound, partly because tourists that come here are finding it difficult because there's so many power cuts and so many shortages, and there's been so much migration out of the country that the service isn't as good as in neighbouring countries.
Interesting to hear Ed's views and thoughts there on what's happening in Cuba. That's it for World Business Report.